When did that change? When did, when did TIFF become a major award season player? I'd say probably 2000 with American Beauty in a significant way. And since then, I'd say over the last 14 years, we've had so many of the People's Choice Award films winners go on to uh, Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Toronto's actually kind of acted as a bellwether. I think five of the last ten or, or so have gone on to uh, win the Oscar for Best Picture and lots of other nominations as well. And awards. Was that ever planned in the timing? Like it's, it's, it's at a no, perfect time of the year right, for that all. to work. So the festival in the early days was in October. The very first festival was in October. And then the second year they moved it in September. And I don't think anyone really knew. I mean, this was 38 years mm. ago. They didn't have a clue because release patterns were very, very different at that point in time, you have to remember. So it's only been, I would say, in the last 15 years that Toronto's become a serious platform for uh, Oscar films. I mean, it happened in the 90s, for sure. But it wasn't, um, it was more for best foreign language films and maybe some, you know, actors would get nominated, et cetera, et cetera. And pictures did as well. And we had films like Princess Bride, for instance, that went on to a lot of nominations and others. But it was really, American Beauty was the film that put us on the map in terms of awards. It really did, because it was a film that came here. DreamWorks didn't really know what they had with that film. They thought it was a dark film. They wanted to take it to a festival, see how it played. Of course, it played through the roof here. It won our Audience Award, and then they built their campaign around that, and then it went on to win Best Picture and a lot of other uh, awards as well. So at that point in time, I think for the studios, it's not just about awards, by the way. It's also about clout in the, uh, in the, in the box office, in the, in the marketplace. So at that point in time, there were a number of films that broke out of Toronto that went crashed through the $100 million box office barrier in North America. That's significant. And, I mean, the studios love awards and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think they're always a little skeptical, skeptical about going to festivals because the film is kind of perceived as somewhat marginal, more for an arty audience, cinephiles. But when Toronto broke through that barrier, and there was so many films, um, I, mean, I can't remember all the names at, at this point in time, but there were a lot of films that broke through that $100 million um, barrier, and Hollywood then really paid attention. Because not only was it for awards, but it was also for the box office. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, of course, that's what it's all about. How do you decide, you're talking about cinephiles and arty films, how do you decide, I mean, there's no massive, you know, those tentpole summer blockbusters at, at film festivals usually. Sure. How, do you, how do you decide between art and, and commerce, I guess, in that, in that regard? Actually, Toronto, I think we don't decide it's a mix of the two it, it really we embrace all um, different zones of, of cinema genres of cinema it's the complete gamut actually from the biggest films with the biggest stars in the world to incredibly small low budget experimental weird wacky you know films that are shot for ten thousand uh, dollars on cell phones that kind of thing is there anything like that this year that's interesting well we've got a, a film phone. one of the films that i love a lot actually an iranian film shot in france because she's left iran is a film that uses, I'd say, 50% cell phone footage from the Green Revolution in uh, 2008. Um, the rest of it's shot in an apartment, but it's, um, it, it shows how some people with no resources at all can make it. This is a really wonderful film, by the way. What's it called? Um, Red Rose, Iranian film, Iranian-French production. Um, and it's you know, an example of one of those films where with just pure creativity and imagination, you can make a stunning piece of work, and it'll be picked up in festivals. Um, but there's a lot of very cheap, low-budget films that we show in the festival. And you have everything in between, you know, the full mm-hmm. gamut, mid-budget films. And there's a lot of major stars now who are dropping down from the tentpole films. You know, they, they obviously earn a great living and get paid, <laughs> paid great salaries for those. So they can make the good ones. Exactly. Yeah. But they want to, you know, they want to be challenged. They want to work in more interesting works. They don't want to just do special effects stuff. I mean, that must be, you know, challenging in its own way. But, you know, performing in front of green screen all the time must have its limitations. So I think they sort of want to deal with, you know, more human, intimate stories. 
may be subject-oriented, you know, films about politics, films about contemporary situation, poverty, immigration, whatever. So you have a lot of major stars actually appearing in those types of films. I mean, our opening night film, The Judge, you know, has a huge cast. Um, Robert Downey Jr., Robert Duvall, Billy Bob Thornton. And they're in a film that is kind of throwback in a way. I mean, it's a mm -hmm. small, intimate drama. It's really well made, father and son story. Um, but it's not a tentpole film. You know, it's not full of special effects. It's really a human relationship story. I'm glad you talked about it a little bit because, like I said, I'm not allowed to mention basically anything. But tell me about some stuff that surprised you this year. There's a terrific first Canadian film, which I'm kind of advocating for, a film called Corbo, first-time film done by a young director, Mathieu Denis. Um, I was very impressed with this. It deals with the uh, Canadian terrorism in the 60s, the FLQ. Oh, yeah. So well before, um, you know, it became sort of a, a current topic of interest with Al-Qaeda and 9-11. Um, and this is a really smart, intelligent, well-made uh, film. Beautifully shot, too, by the way. And wonderful performances by a really young cast. I was really impressed with this film. Um, I saw a terrific uh, second feature by a young French woman filmmaker called The Great Man, Le Grand Dame. Uh, which I loved as well. It deals with a couple of people, French Foreign Legion, believe it or not, who are in Afghanistan. That's where the film starts, but it turns into a father-son relationship as well as this uh, Foreign Legion soldier moves back to France. I was very impressed with that film. Um, one of my favorites as well is a very strange French film, again directed by a woman, a lot of women directors, Pascal Ferrand, called Bird People. Um, Josh Charles. Sorry? Josh Charles. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, he's in the film. And um, I won't spoil this film at all, but it's completely unexpected in terms of the narrative turn it takes. It seems to be what he's doing these days, just unexpected things. Which is great. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, it's terrific when an actor sort of does those kinds of things, shakes up their career. Mm -hmm. Steve Carell, in one of the most interesting films of the year, as Foxcatcher, which I think will go on to many nominations, he is brilliant in the film, absolutely brilliant. And this is a Steve Carell you will not recognize. <laughs> I didn't know it was him. Yeah, you don't know it's I tried him. Going it's... Um, a really smart, intelligent uh, film. I was very, very impressed with that. Mr. Turner, you know, film of the great, great British painter, J.M.W. Mm -hmm. Turner, uh, Michael Lee's film I thought was superb. Uh, there's a wonderful, another French film, because I, I see a lot of French, French films and I love French cinema, called, uh, called May à la Blessure, which is um, based on a true story of the filmmaker himself and his experiences as a French Islamic, uh, as a French Muslim in uh, contemporary French society, which I thought was brilliant, black mm. and white, unbelievably well shot and also really, really smart. Um, it's provocative. Roger Waters, The Wall, you know, for those Pink Floyd fans yeah. who are looking for, you know, kind of a blast out, uh, you know, experience. It's really quite something and a very personal film for Roger because it goes back to the roots of The Wall in all mm -hmm. kinds of ways, you know, explores his own family history, which is very moving. Uh, his father and grandfather were both killed in the two world wars. Um, so that, you know, a, a film I think is really quite extraordinary too. But there's, you know, a lot of stuff in between. Uh, but those are probably, you know, the, some of the highlights that mm -hmm. I would, uh, would, you know, drop in on. Everyone, when I, when I said I was talking to you, everyone asked me the same question. How do they choose the movies? I know you've probably <laughs> answered that question a gazillion times, but everyone, so, so how do you choose the movies? Well, I think what you're looking for, I mean, you choose the movies by traveling the world and going to film festivals, and then there's a lot of private trips we take to screening rooms and all over the world. But in terms of what we're looking for, you're looking for something that intrigues you, that challenges you, that really excites you individually as a programmer. Um, you're also looking for something that you think is going to play to a wider audience. But of course, you're the first audience in many cases. Mm -hmm. We're seeing this film as the public for the very first time. 
we're often the, the very first outsider who's seen the movie. So that's pretty terrific. And if you get really excited about a film, I mean, that says something. It really does. Um, so those films, I think, are the easy ones, you know, the ones that really excite you. Yeah, it's absolutely a slam dunk. I mean, when I saw Slumdog Millionaire for the first time in a London screening room, it was like, wow, you knew this was going to work with an audience. It was so fantastic. It just pulled all the right buttons or hit all the right buttons. And um, so, you know, there's those types of films. Then there's other types of films which are a little quieter, a little bit more difficult, a little bit uh, more challenging. Uh, you're looking for those as well. You realize it's a different kind of audience. Slumdog Millionaire is obviously populist for a mass audience. But you're also looking to uh, make sure that the cinephiles are really, really happy, um, that there's critically intelligent, engaged, smart films. You're looking for films that do say something about the world, that they're dealing with topical issues, maybe in a difficult way. You know, some films may be more subject-oriented and not as professional in terms of their filmmaking. Others may be incredibly slick, but they kind of lack something. They're, they're, there's a little bit of an empty core. Um, so you're looking for something that, I think, engages all of those different elements, you know, the mind, the heart, um, as well as technically. It's really put together well. Um, but I think that's probably a secondary interest. It's more, does it hit you? Does it engage you? And is it really going to grab a large audience? Hmm. Talk about Slumdog and just... Just the way it looked and the way it was shot, at least the way I've perceived filmmaking, it's, cha- it's, cha- it's changed everything mm-hmm. with, the, with the DSLRs and everything. How has, it, how has it changed filmmaking the way you've seen it? I think there's obviously a lot more experimentation. I mean, Sunblock was one of those films. It was the digital revolution was yeah. just beginning in a funny way. This is about seven, eight years ago. I mean, we all knew it was coming. Filmmakers were kind of exploring it, dealing with it. They weren't quite sure. A lot of people were still shooting in film. Some are. Um, but it was, you know, the technology was just starting to become really professional, where people like Danny, et cetera, et cetera, were, felt comfortable with it. And I agree, it's got that kind of uh, in-the-streets, on-the-run mm-hmm. feel to it. It's really energetic. And it captures the energy of children really, really well. And I'm not sure that a 35-millimeter camera, really heavy, mm-hmm. or even, you know, Steadicam, could have captured that in the same way. So I think it actually did, you know, lead to uh, a certain kind of technical breakthrough, just in terms of being more spontaneous, being with your actors, you know, being closer to them. And I think the digital uh, revolution has certainly done that. I mean, some filmmakers, the debate's still on. There's certain filmmakers that are still, uh, you know, shooting in film. Yeah, because no one won't. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And all the power to them. These films yeah, are amazing. Precisely. Yeah. 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 On the other end of the digital stuff, distribution. I wanted to talk to you about just because it's completely changed in the last year or two. Like it's all, and it's still changing. Netflix and internet, and maybe that, I don't know what it's called. I guess it's the second tier. I guess it goes theaters, then there's a second tier, and then VOD, video. exactly. Yeah. Broadcast. So how does, how does that work for TIFF? Like, would you prefer it if, if films just went straight theater to, to, I guess, VOD or DVD or whatever we call it now? Computer. Some do, actually. And, yeah. Uh, out of TIFF, yeah. Does it help? Do. Uh, it helps the filmmakers. I mean, I think anything that helps a filmmaker at the end of the day is good for the industry, of course. Um, so for certain young filmmakers who probably aren't going to get theatrical mm-hmm. distribution, especially when it comes to foreign language films, which is very difficult to get into the North American marketplace, this is an option and an opportunity for them. Um, last year we had a deal with Vimeo, and I think it was picked up by a number of filmmakers where they offered a distribution deal to certain filmmakers. And I think, you know, a good dozen filmmakers or so picked up that deal. Um, and it's, I, I think otherwise those films just would not have, they would have the two festival screenings or three festival screenings here, that's it. They wouldn't have had any life. So there is this, you know, life, the, the so-called long tail for a number of filmmakers. I think the major films are still always going to go through the, the, yeah. uh, you know, the traditional model at this point in time. They'll do theatrical, you know, three months later it's on DVD, VOD, sometimes it's, you know, simultaneous v- VOD or it's a slight delay in VOD and then broadcast, et cetera, et cetera, all the ancillaries. 
Um, and I think it's going to take a, a little while for all of those so-called windows to, to start narrowing, where you actually see everything happening on the same day. There's been some experiments, of course, around the world where, you know, day and day, like everything mm -hmm. breaks at the same time. Theatrical, VOD, DVD, so it just all goes out. In some cases, VOD or DVD has actually preceded a theatrical release. You know, people are out there playing and experimenting. There's not a lot of it. And a lot of those, have, those experiments haven't gone very, you know, they haven't been very successful. So I think jury's still out, but that's fine. I mean, these are the guys leading the way. Mm -hmm. uh, at some point in time, I think the windows are really, really going to narrow. But of course, you know, the ex exhibitors are very, very nervous about this because they want to push people yeah. into, into cinemas. And how does, that, how does that change for you as cinema, as people start having these massive TVs in their house and people are watching movies on phones? How does it change the theater experience? Um, well, we're running theaters year-round in our building. We've got mm -hmm. five screens. But I still think there's a desire on the part of many people to actually see a film on the big screen. And to be honest, my feeling is that tablets and, and you know, phones, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, are not our enemy. They're the opposite, actually. They're your friend. Um, they're educational. They expose the work to a much a wider audience who at the end of the day are intrigued and want to see 2001, which they've seen on their cell phone or on a tablet. They actually want to see a 70 millimeter print. So we're running the Kubrick exhibition this fall in our building. It's going to be a complete uh, exhibition of many of, of the artifacts, etc., etc., from Kubrick's movies, but That's we're also amazing. doing a complete retrospective of, of Kubrick's work. We'll have many of the guests, including his wife, will be here, Douglas Trumbull, who did the special effects for 2001. Um, so I still think, in fact, whenever, whenever we show 2001, we have our own 70 millimeter print, it packs the place. So uh, there's still that curiosity about seeing it on the big screen. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing quite like the communal live experience. I mean, that's one of the reasons the festival is so successful. The fact that we're delivering a lot of the real live movie stars and directors in front of a live audience. There's, you know, that, that synergy, that connection is fantastic. Um, it's like live sports, you know, of course, you know, all these things are being televised around the world, etc., etc. There's nothing like going to the World Cup live. I mean, I watch the World Cup on, you know, I'm a huge football fan. I watch it on television, but there's nothing like, you know, whenever I'm in London, I go to live football matches because I love it. Uh, soccer matches. What's so, your team? Your club, uh, sorry. Tottenham Hotspur. Okay. Ever since I was a kid, I went to an English boarding school. So Spurs are still my team. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. They, well, they lost on the weekend, sadly. <laughs> it's all right. I think you have, you have plenty on your mind to, yeah, to keep it. They, they had a good start to the season. They won their first two games. but yeah. Michael Moore, 25th anniversary, Roger and Moore. <laughs> yeah, right. I remember the first... I, me, I remember that year, actually, really, really well. A couple of memories. Um, in those days, entering your film into a festival was very different. And, of course, you know, people always want to know, how do you enter a film into a festival? Well... Many people have friends, producers, reps, distributors, etc., etc. Michael had none of that stuff. He just simply sent in his DVD, okay? In those days, it was probably a video yeah, cassette. It wasn't VHS, even a yeah. DVD. It was a VHS. But he, he, what, he, where he was smart was he actually phoned the head of print traffic. This is the guy who, who received all those video cassettes in those days and started to talk up the movie. And Roger is, or uh, Michael is a you know, natural salesperson. He really, really is. And the word of mouth just started to travel through the, the, the staff. Here was this guy, Roger Moore, who was promising on bringing up a whole bunch of people from Flint, Michigan. It was going to be a fantastic screening, et cetera, et cetera. We all started talking about the movie before we even saw it. When we saw the film, you know, the film was terrific. It was a documentary, et cetera, et cetera. We had no idea how big it was going to be. Mm. So we, sh we actually ran it in a really small cinema, about 300 seats. And, and these were the days before you actually, 
actually, you didn't choose your films before you uh, arrived at the festival. You just lined up and went, right? Mm. Okay? So it was first come, first served. Well, we realized we made a mistake when we went to this cinema, and there were thousands of people lined up outside. Thousands. None of them could, you know, the first 300 got in. The other 2,000 people weren't going to get in. We've since worked out, you know, the subtleties of the system, the ticketing <laughs> system. But it was, you know... The, the public knew about this film before, uh, I don't know how they found out. I mean, Michael was, as I say, a natural promoter. He just sort of ma- managed to make things happen. And that film went, went on to win our Audience Award, the you know, People's Choice Award that year, and got picked up, major distribution deal. I think Warner Brothers bought it for a multi-million dollar deal. And that put, you know, uh, Michael Moore on the map. How do you think he changed documentary filmmaking? Um, did he? In lots of ways he did, because I don't think the documentary filmmaker uh, of the time aspired to theatrical release. Mm-hmm. And suddenly you had this filmmaker breaking through with a very popular subject. Of course, it was incredibly contemporary. It was all about unemployment in the States. And there was an audience for this. Warner Brothers took a huge gamble. I'm not quite sure why. You know, this is a major studio. It wasn't even one of the small, <laughs> smaller, you know, boutique dis- distributors at that point in time. This is a major studio stepping to the plate. And um, it started to, it just kind of broke through for documentary filmmaking. Of course, I would say the last 10 or 15 years since, uh, I mean, this, you know, uh, Ro- Roger Me was, what, 20, 25 years ago? Yeah. Was it 25? 20, I think you guys are promoting the 25th it's anniversary 25. of Roger Me. So Roger Me was 25 years ago, and I would say in the last 15 years, uh, last 20 years, a lot of documentaries have actually gone on to theatrical release, mm-hmm. and there's been a growing interest in documentaries. Um, I think people have kind of discovered the joys of documentary filmmaking, what you can do in terms of storytelling, good subject. I mean, you know, truth is stranger than fiction in all kinds of ways, and I think there's still that desire um, as... You know, maybe the movies have moved more towards special effects. Uh, you know, the kind of outlandish comic book heroes. People are looking actually for a relief from that. They want a sense of just how daily people live their lives, mm-hmm. and um, or just insights into, you know, people like uh, I can't even remember his name now, Roger, who et cetera, et cetera. It was the you know, I think the CEO of General Motors. Mm-hmm. Um, so they kind of want that insight into the, you know, the back scenes. I mean, Errol Morris has done a fantastic job with, yeah. you know, films on Donald Rumsfeld, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely that, you know, in the, in the hands of skilled documentary filmmakers, they can make a subject completely fascinating. So can Bill Murray. That was a terrible segue. <laughs> but, but the other question people had for me was, what is Bill Murray Day? That great documentary filmmaker. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, he probably would be if he tried his hand at it. Yeah, he would he probably seem, be good at everything. Yeah, it'd be yeah. certainly funny and yeah. engaging and interesting. So Bill Murray's come to the festival with a film called St. Vincent. And, uh, yeah, I mean, people love Bill Murray. Uh, they really do. You know, kind of enigmatic, funny man in all kinds of ways. And, of course, he's got a strong association with Ivan Reitman. And we're in the building uh, that was formerly Ivan Reitman and his two sisters' father's property. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have that kind of connection as well. So we're going to be showing three films, I guess, on Bull- Bill Murray Day. Stripes, uh, Ghostbusters, and Groundhog Day. So two of Ivan's films and the Harold Ramis. Um, and I expect that Bill will be around that day in some kind of you know, way, shape, or form. And uh, there'll be some, hopefully, some announcements in terms of what his, you know, involvement will be. But very exciting for us, obviously. I mean, a major icon. Um, and it goes to show you again the breadth of the festival. The fact that we're attracting somebody like Bill Murray, who comes, you know, gives up a day like this of his life, or you know, says, "Yeah, let's do a Bill Murray Day at the film festival." And were you able to get in contact with him? Because I hear he's basically impossible to get. in I contact. I haven't talked to Bill okay. Murray. No, I have not. Um, I have certainly met him. A number of times, you know, wonderful, charming guy, very mm-hmm. funny. Uh, but I, I'm not sure you can actually reach him by phone. Yeah, there's a. There's a you whole, have to go a, through a lot of interviews. Yeah, there's a whole article so. someone wrote about yeah. it recently. Yeah. Um, talk about Ivan Reitman. Jason Reitman's got a film this year, Men, Women, and Children, Labor Day last year. Yeah, he's really well. For me, I think he's 
the best filmmaker in the world. I don't know where, where he sits for you, but have, how have you seen his progression over the years? We started with Jason's short films, yeah. and then we ran his first feature film, Thank You for Smoking, years ago, and then went on to Juno and Up in the Air. So, you know, we've had a long association with him. We've shown basically every single one of his features, always on the same day, same time, same theater. I think it's a Ryerson 7 o'clock on the first Saturday of the festival. Yeah, he's very superstitious that way, and he insists on that time slot. Uh, I agree. Jason's, I think, you know, what I love about Jason's work is he's beginning to range through, it's very difficult to actually get a sense in terms of who he is as a filmmaker, Mm -hmm. because he's ranging through so many different genres and so many different topics. I mean, this is highly topical, you know, it's about kids and parents and the internet world. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, I think people are going to be blown away by it because of what he does technically with the film. So, I mean, he's got a, an eye for a subject. He's really got his pulse, I think, on, on the contemporary. And uh, I just admire him so much because he's prepared to take chances as a, fil- as a filmmaker, do different things, and um, you know, he's working with some tremendously talented people as well at the same time. Is there anyone else like that, the superstitious that always wants same day time and all that kind of stuff? Nobody quite like Jason. No, nobody quite like Jason. Uh, people, no, you know, every film I think is different for them. So, uh, you know, they, some filmmakers want early in the festival, some people like this particular house, but for others they don't really care. It's in the hands of their distributor. I mean, you know, David Cronenberg, he's opened the festival, he's had galas. You know, sometimes it's Roy Thompson Hall, sometimes it's the Elgin, sometimes it's Princess of Wales. David, at the end of the day, just kind of takes the guidance of his distributor. You know, he has a feel for it, but he doesn't really insist. But, the, you know, Jason, absolutely, that's his slot, and, you know, he owns that slot whenever he has a movie. That's cool. I only have a few minutes left, so I do want to talk about closing down King Street, because that's kind of cool. It's very cool. And what's, and what's going to be happening? And so we moved into this building four years ago, and we did a partial street closure last year, and this year it's going to be complete street closure from the, uh, the first Thursday to Sunday, and then partial afterwards from university to... Um, I guess Peter Street. Mm-hmm. So very exciting for us. Um, we're going to have all kinds of activations: music, food, uh, actors, acrobat. You know, just wait and see. But there's a lot of music. We're building a stage, and it'll be fantastic because people who just want to come down and stargaze and just sort of soak up the festival atmosphere and not necessarily see a film will be able to come down here. If they want to see a film, of course, there'll be millions of people lined up at Roy Thompson Hall, Princess of Wales, Scotiabank, just around the corner, and our own, you know, our own building. So the place will really be buzzing. But I think it's phenomenal. We closed down the street when we opened the building uh, for like a half a day, I think it was, and it was really quite something. It was so exciting. I mean, to turn this into a pedestrian mall for the first four days is going to be uh, incredible. You've got so many guests from around the world. I mean, 4,000 industry delegates from international from around the world, another 1,000, you know, it's about five, 6,000 professionals working in Toronto. And then, of course, you've got the Toronto audience, too. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of people are just going to come down and soak up the atmosphere. Hopefully, you know, the weather's going to be good. It looks like it's going to be great this weekend. Um, and they'll just get an opportunity to kind of see stars maybe, hear some music, have a fun time, you know, eat in the restaurants across the way and just sort of, you know, have a great time. It's a good way to close it. Yeah, great. Cool. Terrific. Thanks, Piers. Thanks. Appreciate Thanks. it.